because I could just stay there and park on emotionalism here this morning. It would not be hard for me in this holiday season. I hope this doesn't seem too simplistic this morning to you who already, I'm sure, fully understand the doctrine of soteriology. That was a pretty nice out, wasn't it? (coughs) Pardon me. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Now when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Wow. Your Bible say that? Wow. Right there. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. May I insert just on that verse, that transformation of a life really does come when somebody finally receives Jesus joyfully. There's a difference between, you know, being taken to church or taken to kid zone or taken to a cell group or, uh, or going out of some sort of forced process. But when all of a sudden it becomes that joyful reception of Christ, then comes life transformation. If you just go to church or if you just attend services or you just go to a small group or you go to religious events because you kind of have to or because you're married to somebody that wants you to go or or your friend asked you to, and it's never really the joyful moment, you, you shouldn't expect much transformation to occur in that environment. But Zacchaeus is about to be transformed because he received Jesus joyfully. But when they saw it, who, the crowd, they all complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. And then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. In this final verse, I recommend to you that you memorize Luke 19.10. Put it in your heart forever. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. When I say I don't mean to be simplistic this morning or, or over, overly simple, we can get caught up in a lot of things. And not all of them bad things, great things. Even as a body in Christ of uh, the church family, we can get running off and doing lots of things and feeling very busy and productive and lose sight of the truest thing we're about. And what is that? Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Why was Jesus born in the manger? Why did Jesus live his life in obscurity and then come out and for three years minister in what we call the ministry of popularity? And then to end up getting nailed to the cross. In fact, the, the chapter is just ahead of this. I was flipping through and 
Jesus is teaching parable after parable and warning of becoming offended and encouraging his disciples about their faith and their duty. Uh, we get the story of the rich man and Lazarus and the great divide that's going to be between those who believe and those who don't. We see Jesus healing people in the ten lepers uh, of account. And then Jesus talking about the coming kingdom and prayer and the persistent widow in chapter 18. And, and he's teaching and teaching and teaching. But when he gets down to the end of our chapter 18, he's turning to his disciples and saying, this is it. I'm on my way to Jerusalem for the last trip. I'm going to go. And in fact, if you want to read with me, this is what he says in verse 31, 18. He took the twelve aside. All these things are having healing people, crowds, and teaching, and parables. But he pulls his twelve, and he pulls them aside, and he says to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished or fulfilled. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and insulted, and spit upon. They will scourge him, and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they didn't know the things which were spoken. This may be a little vivid, and I'm not sure everybody will know this picture, but if we go back a number of years to the, the, the riots in Los Angeles, um, the Rodney King affairs, some of you may remember seeing on the news a picture of a man being pulled from his tractor trailer. And pulled and thrown to the ground and beaten senselessly. Um, beaten senseless, senseless and senselessly. You know, that is a picture for us today of the word here, what it says, what Jesus says in verse 32, he'll be insulted. That's the word insulted in the Greek, is what happened to that man. It was violence without reason. It was Brutal. It was insolent, sarcastic. You, you, you could list, could, could continue. It's this riotous act that has no real reason to be and no end. It just continues. And Jesus said, this is what's going to happen to the Son of Man. Not just going to hurl insults at him, but he himself will be insulted, beaten, wantonly. And rejected and refused. And they didn't even, they didn't get it. It was hidden from them. You know, the scriptures tell them, tell us that after the resurrection, then they got a hold of some of those things and began to understand them. But after Jesus has done all these ministries and done these things and walked with his disciples and taught the crowds and taught the twelve, he walks into Jericho, which of course was not that frequented by lots of people, but they didn't like that road to Jericho. That, remember that story of the, the uh, guy that got beat up there? The tough road. He comes into Jericho. And what I'm seeing in my mind this morning is that with all this behind Jesus, he's still focused on the one reason he came. And little short Zacchaeus skinnies up the tree to be able just to see Jesus. And Jesus, knowing every man's heart, he knows your heart. He knows my heart. Knowing every man's heart, looks up at Zacchaeus and says, Hey, buddy, you got to get out of the tree now because I'm coming to your house. Zacchaeus is out of his mind, elated. I mean, this is more than I could imagine. I just wanted a glimpse of him. I've heard about him. I've seen him before, but he's coming to my house? Receives him joyfully. 
And during the conversation at the tent dinner table, even though Jesus is being accused of eating with sinners, and I'm, I'm not sure how you feel about this, but I wouldn't mind being accused of eating with sinners if I had the same motive as Christ. Not just out partying, but out reaching the lost. Because that's what Jesus was doing. Zacchaeus has a transformation. It has to be a transformation in his heart that occurs. Because when he stands up and says, Lord, look, I give half of everything I have to the poor. He was a rich man. Why was he rich? Because he was the chief tax collector. Tax collectors were always skimming and stealing. Nobody liked them. They were the Jews who were between the Romans and the Jews. The Jews didn't like them and the Romans didn't like them. They were a land, an island of, to themselves. And they were thieves. And everybody knew it. It's kind of neat that Matthew ends up part of the twelve too, isn't he? Another tax collector of the early disciples. An apostle to the Lord. I give half of everything I have to the poor. That would have been a lot. It's interesting that he uses the word if, or we have it translated to us as the word if. And if I've taken anything from anybody falsely, <laughs> that's a rhetorical statement. The answer is yes, I have. Of course I have. I've taken from people all my life as a tax collector. I restore it fourfold. I'm going to give back four times as much as I took. Now, don't you think for a rich, stingy, thieving tax collector, that would be a transformation? That's an evidence of an inner change. He wasn't just making a one-day decision about his money. He was saying, I finally see it. I, I thought this was life, but knowing you is life. And knowing you brings transformation. And now I see where I was taken and should have been giving. All of this in one little lunch meeting. And his life is transformed. And Jesus, if you've ever seen the Jesus video by Campus Crusade for Christ, you see them sitting. I haven't thought about playing it this morning, but in that one section we've used in encounters. And, and they, Jesus just kind of leans back and laughs. He goes, salvation has come to this house today. And then he's also a son of Abraham. Well, do I have to be a son of Abraham to be saved? The answer is yes, because to be a son of Abraham means to be a person of faith. If we read Paul's writings, to be a, an offspring of Abraham is to be like Abraham, a man who believed God by faith and followed him by faith, even to the point that where God said about Abraham, I've accredited your faith to you as righteousness. So we come to God by faith. Zacchaeus had come by faith. And so Jesus includes him in this statement of being a son of Abraham. And then he touts the, the results out loud for us in verse 10, which I still recommend you memorize. Maybe you could say it with me together. We could do that, but there's probably too many versions of different writings. But mine says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the mission of Jesus. You say, why do we exist as a church? What's it all about? It's about leading people to Christ before it's too late for them. That's our basic standard reason for existence. And we shouldn't just let time pass and be always concerned about our own needs when there are those who are bound for hell that is not changeable once they've left here. I mentioned uh, the doctrine of soteriology, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it really is a true thing. It's the doctrine of salvation. 
The word here in, in verse 9, and some of you may have a study Bible that accompany, uh, gives you this as well, where Jesus says, Today salvation has come. Soteria, where we get the word soteriology, the study of salvation, actually includes all of this. Deliverance, preservation, soundness, prosperity, happiness, rescue, general well-being. The word is used both in material, in a material temporal sense, and in a spiritual eternal sense. The New Testament especially uses the word for spiritual well-being. Salvation is a present possession with a fuller realization coming in the future. It's not just a one-time event where I was saved and that's all I needed. The scripture came to my mind in 1 Timothy 2.4 where it says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There's two steps there. Be saved and then come to a knowledge of the truth. Zacchaeus had the first part. He was saved. He was now a person of faith. He was a person who had put his place, placed his trust into Christ and demonstrated the change of his life through this transformation that occurred in his mind and his heart by turning around and doing something very opposite to the way he was living. That's what happens for most of us when we come to Christ and there's a transformation. A lot of the old stuff just drops off. It's like we don't do those things anymore. We don't have any need for that any longer. And then our life takes on this new dimension that's life-filled, full of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. This is something we were never before. And people are amazed at the change. Like, that's transformation. You know that our life transformation is one of the things that convinces most people of Christ. They look at us and go, I just can't. I've never seen this before. Somebody lives like you. I mean, you, you, you don't get mad anymore. You don't blow up like you used to. You don't, there's something different about you. What is it? And you say, well, Jesus came into my life. And now I'm saved. I found salvation. But I'm on this journey now to find the knowledge of the truth as well. Zacchaeus didn't get it all in one day, nor did we. But we were saved in one instant. And the difference in eternity was made. And that's another piece of today, is thinking about eternity before we're done. So this salvation that had come to him and has come to us is about our entire well-being. And it's past, present, and future tense. And I say that specifically that in the, in the language of the Bible and the Tenses of the verbs and uh, written about salvation, it means that we were saved, we are being saved, and we will continue to be saved in the future. It's called the aorist tense of the Greek. That refers to all three. It's all-encompassing. Salvation is not only the forgiveness of our sins so that we can go to heaven, but it is about our entire well-being. It's about restructuring the mind. Have you ever known a person with real mental problems? who's gotten saved and had a transformation that could think straight? That's a miracle. Some of you know my testimony. I, I was become a druggie. 
when I came to Christ. And I remember one, it was nearly one year, seemed like to the day, kind of one of those miracle moments, when I got up after being saved for a year, and, and it was like somebody lifted the veil off my head and I could think clearly. I thought I was doing real well the whole year of being saved. But a year later, it was like, shh. And I blinked, and life looked good. Things were clearer. My thoughts were back. And, uh, and the next time I went to eat, I realized I could taste things that I'd never tasted before. And I, I was wondering, what happened? What, what's going on in my life? And I realized the dragging effect of the drug culture just had, had its grip on me. And so I had to come to the knowledge of the truth where a transformation took place. And finally, I broke free from that. We, we need to give people some grace after they get saved until they come to the knowledge of the truth. We laugh about it, but one time there was a guy, I think it was right in here, one of our cell groups or something, that just got saved. I mean, he was Zacchaeus. And uh, his vocabulary hadn't made the change yet. How many of you are here? You remember that day? I don't remember all the words, but he's like, I am just so blanking glad that I know Jesus. And this blankety blank life of mine is blankety blank great, you know? It was like, beep, 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 beep. Or, Quick, get to the recording, you know. <laughs> but we were, you know, we felt the apprehension in the moment. And at the same time, we all want to rejoice. And say, hey, you know, you know, I used to be just like that. And you, you say, well, God will help him. He's going to come to a knowledge of the truth. And this vocabulary will catch up. Amen? God, John 3.16, we know. How many of you know John 3.16? God so loved the world. And gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in should not but have 17. Excellent. Excellent. Always get 17. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Oh, I just take a deep breath sometimes when I read that. Thank you, Father. Because I was on the line. To be condemned. But he didn't send his son to condemn the world, but that through him the whole world could be saved. God, right? The Son of Mankind to seek and to save that which was lost. Number one. Number two, Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, stands up in the temple and reads from the scroll from Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. For what? Preach good tidings, right? To proclaim freedom, to proclaim recovery, and to release the oppressed. The mission of Jesus was to bring deliverance to his people, his creation, to bring his creation, you and I, to salvation, to a knowledge of Christ personally, and then to deliver us from those things which would hold us back from being in relationship with him. I've been delivered from lots of stuff. Thank you, Lord, that those things no longer affect me. There are a few other things in my life that have become apparent that I'd love to be delivered from now. You know, the, the things we used to think were big sins, the huge stuff, you know, this and that and that. We could give a list. And uh, when you first come to Christ, those are the big items. You know, i got to stop doing this. i got to quit doing that. You just need more of the grace of God to fill your life. You're like a tree, and it's got to get some life coming from the new source in the root structure. And as it comes up, it'll push the old stuff out. 
You don't want to just go hacking on your own limbs and picking off all the bad fruit, trying to just change your behavior. That doesn't work, does it? I'm just going to work harder. I'm just going to do better. I'm going to act nicer. That works until the next time you're standing on the curb and the guy drives by in the puddle and and you go, today I'm not going to be so nice. Right? You just, ah! Here's the old man comes to life in an instant. But if you replace the old life with the new life of Christ, then your responses become Christ-like. Right? Knowledge of the truth. That's not like me. I don't do those things. I'm a Christian. That means I'm Christ-like. That means I have the Father's nature. That means I'm born again of the Holy Spirit. That means Christ is alive in me. And the life that I now live, I live by His strength and faith, not my own. So I don't have to respond that way anymore. I don't have to yell and scream. I don't have to be angry. I don't have to steal to get ahead. I don't have to cheat. And the list goes on. Because those things are not part of me anymore. They're not part of Him. They're not part of me. He came that I might be delivered. Jesus said, I came to proclaim freedom to the captives. And we have to go on being set free, being set free regularly from things that are pointed out in our lives by the Holy Spirit's conviction. It's, it can be helpful when somebody else identifies it for you, but it's a little more rude, isn't it? You're like, hey, you need to knock that off. That's a sinful activity. That's a bad activity. That's, you shouldn't think that way. If they come at you with all the fingers pointing and You know, you can use that to your advantage to say, well, okay, Lord, deal with me on those things, but that person does not have the power to bring change in my life by yelling at me or pointing out my faults. But if they're pointed out, maybe I'll take some sense about it and put it in front of the Lord and say, okay, Lord, how much grace will I need for this opportunity to, to occur? I need to be delivered. I want to be set free completely. And I want to have the hope that tomorrow and next week, and next month, and this next year, my life is going to radiate more and more like Christ. I want to have that hope. I don't want to try and do this on my own and be hopeless. I can't make those changes. I can't. I just can't. And when I look at the word salvation as we defined it here from the Greek, it includes all of that. We said about Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house. He was saying, deliverance has come to this house. Preservation has come to this house. Soundness, prosperity, happiness has come to this house. Rescue has come to this house. And general well-being has come to this home. Romans 6.23, any of you can quote that too. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, or Christ Jesus our Lord, however you may have memorized it. This is what I wanted to come back to, because in the simple message today, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, demonstrated by Zacchaeus. We know that included in that was deliverance provided for his, him and his household. And we tie that together with the story of the Philippian jailer, the account of the Philippian jailer, which is, you know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your oikos. We're to bring the salvation back to our oikos, back to our friends, back to our circle of family and, and friends, as Cornelius did in, in Acts chapter 10 when he had Simon come to preach to him. By the time Simon got there, he had all his friends and his family gathered to hear the gospel message. 
We're supposed to, when this happens, deliverance comes to us, we bring it back to our oikos, our family. Deliverance and well-being comes to the home. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. We have this hope. We are going to live from now on. I like to make the distinguishing point that when we talk about eternal life, most of us have kind of a locked-in pattern that says, well, when I quit living here, then I'll begin eternal life. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible says, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll never die. Right? You'll never die. That means you're born again. The real you, the spiritual you, not this part you're living in, is now alive forever. It will never die. Your body might quit, but you will never die. You're living for, and that's the same for those who don't believe in Christ. There's coming a judgment where they will be dispatched to eternal hell. And we should be very, very concerned about this. And some of us have just spent time with our families over the holidays and looked into the faces of those who we were born with and loved and were worried about their future. We're concerned for their eternity. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the setting free and the full deliverance to those who follow him and to give them general well-being. And the future is bright because it's eternity in relationship with God. That's what this journey is about. That's the simplest we can get it. We're going to go and live forever in heaven. And it's going to be a lot more than just sitting under palm trees or Whatever your picture has been, playing violins or harps. Or, you know, I don't like doing any of that stuff. So I don't think that's all there is about heaven. There's a, anybody know what a frosty mold is? i got to sell them in the Midwest. I little ice cream treats. Frosty molds. And one of my earlier pastors said, you know, we're just going to be sitting under shade trees eating frosty molds forever. And I thought, what a, what a hugely terrible picture. <laughs> you know, I like the other one. I've told this before, but it comes to mind about the guy and his wife who passed away at the same time. They got to heaven at the same time. And so let's show you your mansion. These are all unfortunate kind of um, extra biblical stories that aren't real, right? No? Okay. See, so you're going to find this in the Bible. So pause the recording. <laughs> and they show the guy a nice house, beautiful, what they always wanted. And he opens the slide and says, anytime you're hungry, there's this banquet outside the back door. And it's huge, everything you ever want. And the guy's looking at that. And, and he says, and you like to golf? He says, oh, I love to golf. He says, look right here in your backyard. It's a huge golf course for you. He grabs his hat and pulls it out. He throws it in. He kicks it across the, the yard. And the wife says, what's the matter, honey? He goes, you know, if you hadn't fed us all that health food, I could have been here ten years ago. <laughs> And the, the only reason we tell stories like that is to, is to kind of give some depiction that whatever you're thinking about it going to be is going to be beyond your imagination. It has to be. God's designing. He's made it for you. And eternity's not a bad place to go. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. We, we do this. We give gifts. We decorate. We want to give people things because we want to say we love you. We want to give them, I appreciate all your kids getting the Bible, man. That's like the Word of God. Uh, as life forever for them. And they love them. 
powerful gifts. We want to give people that will carry them uh, to, to them our love or our appreciation for them. But God says, I want to give you a gift. You need eternal life in Christ. You don't need eternal life outside of Christ. You don't need to be damned forever, lost forever. You should live eternally with me. I've got plans for you that make the pageantry of the Christmas season look dim. Mm -hmm. So the simplicity of today, three things. One, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Salvation comes, it's soteriology, the study of salvation includes full deliverance and general well-being to those who follow Christ. And our hope is secure. We're heading for heaven. We're not living here like we're living in heaven already. This is not heaven. It was a truism that, that someone else coined. I, I don't know who to attribute it to, but it says, for those who are saved, living on earth is the closest to hell that you'll ever experience. But if you're unsaved, living on earth is the closest to heaven you'll ever experience. Isn't that interesting? Well, that's a great observation by somebody. I'm going to hold on to that. This, I think this is bad, but hell is way worse than this. The person who doesn't know Christ, this is as good as it gets. Not very hopeful. So what's our calling? How is it, the old King James says, how is it you see your calling, brethren? What is our reason for existing once we come to know Christ? It's very simple. It's to share our faith with others. It's to share the hope that we have. It's to get saved and then come to a knowledge of the truth in a progressive lifestyle of coming to know Christ. It happens in an instant, but you spend the rest of your life getting to know Him, preparing for eternity. Some people say this is just a dress rehearsal for heaven. You know what we're doing here? Getting ready. Laying up treasure in heaven, not storing up on the earth. But it has to start with surrender of the heart. We sang a couple songs this morning about surrendering. We like to sing those things to remind ourselves that it is a continuing process to surrender and come to a knowledge of the truth. You know, there's another verse that, that talks about, I think it's 2 Timothy chapter 3, where it says, Perilous times will come, men will be lovers of themselves, boastful and all that, and, and, and ever learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. I, I tied that together in my heart and mind this morning. Well, that's significant. They may have gotten saved, but they, in all of their process of learning, they never came to a knowledge of the truth. And now they've become a group of people who are leading others astray. That's what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So there is a responsibility that lies sets upon us to get saved, to know Christ, and then to continually come to a knowledge of the truth. Studying the Bible is still good for us. <laughs> Eating the Word is still healthy. And uh, some of you will be gearing up for your, okay, it's January 1st, read through the Bible this year. Maybe we can find a way to do that together and encourage one another and actually devour the Word again and go through it and know the accounts of the Scripture and know how to found our lives and to live them out by knowing Him. Thanks for your time this morning. I, I know I have not been jumping up and down preaching, but this seems so simple to me. It's the gift that God wants to give us. The gift of eternal life, knowing His Son. Father, thank You for Your Word. Your Word is truth. We can say a lot of things, Father, but unless it comes through Your Word, it's not necessarily true. 
But I know even the story I told about the couple in heaven is not a depiction of what you've prepared for us. But Lord, it is a reminder that you have plans for us that are so far above what we've ever imagined. Lord, forgive us for thinking so low. Forgive us for living below our means that you've provided. We ask that in this coming year, as we close one and open a new one next week, Lord, that you will help us to regularly come to a knowledge of the truth. That we will regularly experience deliverance from those things that are contrary to the life of Jesus in us. That we will experience well-being in our oikos family. That we'll have your peace and your joy and deliverance from sin on a regular basis. And help us, Lord, inspire us to share this faith with others, to live it out in front of somebody else, to let them be the fruit inspectors of our lives so that they come to an understanding that you are alive in us and they too will call upon you for salvation. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. What do we say now? Merry New Year? Or... It's kind of between the two. Hey, the first service of next year will be on New Year's Day. Is that, like, is that a bad idea? Day after New Year's Day? Day after New Year's Day? The second. Oh, good. 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 Good.